All right, folks. Shalom and welcome to the Ishai Fleischer Show, broadcasting live from Judea to the world. You're a part of it wherever you are. And thank God Almighty for the opportunity to broadcast with you. And I'm joined by my beloved one and only hostess with the mostest, Malka Fleischer. Hello. Shalom Happy and welcome. Happy summer. Happy summer to you, Malka. I got to tell you, so much stuff going on that I almost forgot to do the show this week. Wow. Even though I recorded yesterday at the Knesset and we'll play some segments from the Knesset, I was just like, so many things are just happening and so many people are calling because it's summer. People are coming in to the right. land. Remember those summers where nobody was coming? Do you remember those two summers we had where nobody came to Israel I, I because it was COVID? I nary remember that really. It's, it's We went on a big trip to America and we extended our ticket for free because there was no one to see in Israel and the airlines were just like, yeah, fly whenever you want. <laughs> Well, we got a, plenty of space. That's not this summer. This summer is huge and people are coming in. My friend Jake is coming in for his uh, daughter's bat mitzvah. Mazel tov to Miriam. And, and my friend Adam is coming in. And a lot, just people are coming in. Listeners to the show are coming in. And if you are coming in and you want to see me and you want to go to Chevron, uh, then write to me uh, at Ishai, com or uh, sign up on the Hebron Fund tour, which is hebronfund.org forward slash tour. And I can meet you on the tour. Uh, and bottom line is that is that you know if you're coming in, don't be a stranger. This is the time. We're we we're aware of that. We're aware that this is the big time to come in. You know who else came in uh, just now? Uh, about 30, 40 volunteers for the Hayovel organization. Mm-hmm. Okay, these are non-Jews, uh, Bible lovers who are here in the land, uh, and they came in a young group, like eighteen to thirty-six, and they came and they volunteered in Hebron. To clean up the land, to make, uh, uh, to help with some roofing, to help with some shviel. Uh, uh, what's it called? The uh, path making. Yeah, and to help get rid of some underbrush and some weeds and, and some thicket. And <laughs> and in the meantime, yeah, they're like real authentic American farm people. That's right. That's right. That's so right. So they know how to do things with their hands. Right. So there, there's a mixture. Unlike us, who was like not alone, uh, allowed to own land for like thousands of years in different places, they were always allowed to own land. So they know how to work the land. Yeah. And there's there's a there's a awesome admixture of of pro Israel pro pro Bible pro Israelism. Right. And then at the same time, a mix of that with American can-do-ism right. and frontierism. Right. With a little elbow grease, we can accomplish anything. Right. A little Dukes of Hazard, and then, <laughs> and then boom, you know, you, have, you just have an amazing combination. Right. And I gave them, I gave them the, full, the full experience. Along with touring the Tomb of the Patriarchs and the Matriarchs at the end, yep. they also got yelled at by a world-class anti-Israel uh, propagandist and instigator and convict and convict uh the one and only isa amru who of course made a video out of his little little uh, uh, uh you are on my land uh, apartheid you you came from away you didn't even ask me i'm like this public land he's like you didn't even ask me now you are occupiers you are helping the occupiers gave him the whole spiel and they were like you know these are young people they were a little deer in headlights had to help them with that. Of well, course, they're not used to being attacked. Right. They're not used to being told that they're doing evil when they're like, we're here doing good. Right. right? So there was that. Uh, and then there was the, uh, then we had to, we, we gathered a lot of the thicket and the, and, the, and, the, and the weeds into a big pit and we lit it on fire. Well, the army came. Because there was a fire. 
Well, no, they came because the fire was the smoke was causing blockage, supposedly. Oh, of their visibility. To the camera, the ladies, the the army soldier, female soldiers who watch the cameras all over the region. And they're like, turn it off. I'm like, I can't and I won't. And then you'll have to wait 10 more minutes. They're like, it's a security threat. I'm like, no, it's not. If you can't see somewhere, just go over there and and, And and stand stand there. It's all good. Everything's good. And uh, it's done 10 minutes. Even if I wanted to turn off the fire, I couldn't. And it would still be smoky. It would still be even smokier. If you try to turn off a fire like that with water and stuff, it's just going to you know, smoke up and stuff. So they saw me in nego- Jewish-Israeli negotiations. Like, get off me, Atigabi! Like that kind of thing, you know? <laughs> negotiations with soldiers. So uh, they saw that. And of course, just to touch the land and to beautify the land and to be thanked and recognized uh, by the folks of the Jewish community of Hebron who are naturally suspicious of non-jewish pro-bible pro-israel folks right they don't know what their motivations are right but instead they came in and they had a great time and and it's one of these experiences that touches you uh for life and it was just it was just beautiful and i just want to say if you want to hear uh, a good news broadcast on a basically daily basis um the hayovel group has actually uh two members of the hayovel group do a really cool show on YouTube called The Israel Guys. That's right. They do a great job. And it's worth watching. And they have great t-shirts as well. Okay. Um, I also want to reach out to uh, my Muslim brothers and sisters and wish everybody a happy Eid al-Adha. Okay. Today is yesterday. The Tomb of the Patriarchs and Matriarchs was closed. And so was the Close Temple to Mount. Jews. To it Jews. It was open to Muslims. Open to Muslims. Close to Jews. And so too on the Temple Mount. Eid al-Adha. Now, Eid al-Adha celebrates... This now, now though I'm wishing a well wishes to my Muslim brothers and sisters, I need to help make a tiny correction here, because there's some, let's just call it, inc- not not quite correct information that may stem from some understanding of Quranic verses, but basically, uh, according to the Quran, uh, Ibrahim, i.e. Abraham, yes, Abraham, yes, uh, took up. A son, it's not exactly clear which son, Okay. to Mount Arafat because he was- Where is that? In Saudi Arabia. Oh. Uh, and he took him up there uh, in order to uh, almost sacrifice him. Then, then, then God, and in the we plural of the Quranic version of how God sounds, it's like, and we told him to stop and, and, and basically stopped him. And then they get good tidings of the son Isaac. So very huh. confusing- the bottom line is that according to old Muslim scholars, it was indeed, like 150 Muslim scholars said, it was Isaac who was almost sacrificed on Mount Arafat uh, and is celebrated at Eid al-Adha, the holiday of the sacrifice. But uh, according to m- the majority of Islam, and certainly the Islam today, it was Ishmael who was brought up to the mountain and not Isaac at all. And only then was Isaac born, and that's what it means that there was good tidings of, of Isaac being born. Why am I saying this? Because the majority, the vast majority of Islam understands Eid al-Adha to represent the binding of Ishmael by Ibrahim at Mount Arafat. So I just want to make it clear to help everybody out there with some of the misunderstandings, okay? It was Avraham actually did go up on the mountain, and it was the Temple Mount, the Mount Revere Temple Mount Moriah. Moriah. And it was definitely, and I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but it was definitely Yitzchak. You see, the Torah, which predates the Quran and has, has a much clearer 
sense of, of you know, what, what happened here in the Holy Land about Ibrahim, who was a Hebrew-speaking Jew, Semite, lays it out pretty clearly and kind of explains to you what the Quran is talking about, which is, which is that it was Avraham on the Temple Mount with Yitzchak. Ishmael did not go up. And the reason that this is important is that some might be given to believe that this, uh, ho- this Muslim holiday is a su- supersessionist holiday trying to erase the story of Yitzchak and the binding, which is a foundational story of the Torah and of the Jewish people. I know nobody would want that. So I just want to make sure that everybody gets it clear. Thank you. And have a nice Eid al-Adcha. I think that we could all, and I'm going to celebrate today Eid al-Adcha. How? I'm going to celebrate it by celebrating Ibrahim's uh, uh, bringing of Isaac to the Temple Mount. I'm going to celebrate this holiday of the sacrifice by saying, that's right, uh, folks, let's remember Ibrahim, Abraham. Let's remember the story of Isaac on the Temple Mount, the Jewish connection to this place, the children of Abraham's connection to this place. Just want to make sure that everybody, say it's very simple, see? To me, Christmas, that's the day when we celebrate King David, right? It's like Well, just, I don't see the connection there. I just want to help people because some people think that, you know, I just want to help people understand there's a way to remember these holidays in a way that's, that's, that's proper and correct and biblically accurate. And so, Eid al-Adcha, if you're going to have to celebrate it, let's celebrate it correctly, which is the, the binding of Isaac. We don't have a holiday for the binding of Isaac. We talk about it in Rosh Hashanah, but... I say Eid al-Adcha, the binding of Isaac on the Temple Mount. Great, a great memorial and, and, and other such ideas. So there you go, Malka. We, we now talked about, and one of the Hayovel guys started asking me, he's like, do you guys understand us to be Esau? Like Esau. Uh, yes. Or Edom, he says to me. And I laid out to him, you know. Well, what'd you say? You know what I told him? I told him what the going was. Wait, why don't, you, why don't you explain what you're talking about here? So... There's these non-Jewish, American, Bible-loving folks, and they are out there working the land. And he's asking me, do you understand, uh, working the good land here in the land of Israel and volunteering to beautify it, coming out in spite of their neighbors and friends who tell them, don't come to the land of Israel, it's dangerous. In spite of the fact that there's like shootings at Hawara and all that kind of stuff. So they're coming out here, or, or an Eli, God forbid, you know. And so they're coming out here. And he asked me, like, are we, in your eyes, Edom? From the Bible, you know, the, the older brother of, 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 of Jacob and uh, the one who's always fought with him and, and, and caused so many pains and tribulations. Right, and an enemy of, right. of the children of Israel. Right. So, uh, so I, said to him, I said to him what the Gaon Mavilna says, which is there's a sifting going on. Mm. There's a sifting. I said, yes. Generally, in a broad sense, we understand the West, Western Europe, America, to be part of the Edom Roman type of, you know, but there's a sifting. I said to him, do you see America as one thing? Is it pro-Israel or anti-Israel? He's like, well, it's kind of both. In many, in many ways, it's anti, and part of it are very pro. So I said, there's a sifting going on. And there's a sifting going on in the Muslim world as well. There's a sifting. There's the pro-Israel folks like Morocco. My mom came back from Morocco. I was like, these guys do not care about the so-called Palestine, which I, by the way, now spell uh, P-A-L-S. P-A-L-A. P-A-L-E-S-T-E-I-N, Palestine, okay? That's right, Palestine is Jewish. That's what T-shirt I want to make. Let me know, by the way, if you want that T-shirt. If people write to me say, I want a T-shirt that says Palestine is Jewish, then, then we'll make it. But in any case, uh, so I said to him, there's a sifting going on. And there's a third sifting, which is amongst the Jewish people. Look at us here in Israel. There's such a strong pro-Israel, pro-nationalist, pro-Torah outlook. And then there's a strong anti-post-Zionist, post-Torah, we're, there's, a, there's a birul, a sifting that's happening right now, and that's the, the time that we're in. So 
So yeah, maybe I generally may see you guys as as Edom, but like I'm sifting. Right. Each person is right. is their own cheshbon, uh, is their own account. Right. I told them when I see an, an Arab, I decide immediately: Are you an Ishmaelite, which means that you're my my half brother, or are you a Philistine, which means that you're an invader and a foreigner, and therefore I, I make that determination. How do you act? What do you? What's inside of you? Uh, those are two very different trajectories. If you're an Ishmaelite or you're a Philistine. Those are different trajectories uh, in my mind. Any case, Malka, wow, that was some uh, that was some serious uh, philosophy, right? Yeah. Um, yesterday, well, how did they receive that? They received it great. You know, with things that come from the heart and the real. Op- First thing, it's it's a whopper of an education. You're out there. You're seeing the different tensions. You're understanding the different tensions. How did they react? Did they like get mad at who? When 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 they were being yelled at by uh, anti-Israel activists, did they get upset? Did they get freaked out? It was more wonderment and like, how do I, like, it, it really depends on the level of, of, of uh, education that you already had beforehand. Mm-hmm. But I think for a lot of them, it was like processing, a processing, like you don't often meet somebody who's accusing you of these things and then you have to analyze, is this true? Is this not true? Luckily, I was there to dispel because he's, you know, Isamru is quite, um, what's it called when, you, when you're good at convincing other people? He's meshachnea uh, in Hebrew. Persuasive. Persuasive. Thank you, Malka. Quite well. Thank you. Well done. Well done. I'm good at synonyms. Malka, yesterday I was at the Knesset, and uh, the first thing that happened is that I sat down, not the first thing, but it, uh, I'm doing like some intermittent fasting. One o'clock I sat down to eat some lunch. I got some fish. Nice. Some Moroccan fish. Yeah, Moroccan fish. And some br- br- something you might not know called broccoli. <laughs> broccoli, which is broccoli. Yes. Okay. Very in, good. In, in, uh, in modern Hebrew, uh, broccoli. And so I got some of that, uh, and a dude came down and sat down next to me. Clearly a, a wizened type. Hmm. I saw it like, it, you know, you get to know the types. I'm like, clearly a learned wizened type. All right. And he immediately told me that he had just completed his doctorate on the kind of math that didn't exist in the time of the sages and how would they have dealt with certain questions? He goes, there are many places where the sages are like, we know our math isn't totally accurate here, but here's how we see certain halacha questions. He's like, had they had a math that was only developed later on, they, how would they have solved it? What? And he wrote, because there's a lot of math in, in Jewish issues and Jewish law. And uh, a lot of, for example, he's, they were very good at calculating the, the, the moon and the stars and all the constellations and the cycles, the 21-year cycle of the sun and all, all kinds of stuff like that. 22-year cycle? Is it 22 years? Whatever. any case, I, I, I do not profess to be a math genius. Uh, but in any case, he uh, finished his doctorate. Now he wants to teach math to the ultra-Orthodox through his curriculum. Whoa. And he wants to teach... Through like a Gemara comparison curriculum. Right. And and he wants to teach Torah to math types. What? Both ways. Well... That's cool. Yeah. I've never heard of that. Yeah. And he sat down and told me all this stuff. It was really great. So this reminds me also of the fact that uh, Rabbi Shimshon Cohen Nadel, uh, our resident rabbi, resident scholar, uh, is uh, um, uh, with us today to talk about uh, did the sages study science and this was a very dear topic to our rabbi our joint rabbi rabbi moshe david tendler 
uh, a great a great both scholar rabbi and scholar and uh, I think that Rabbi Shimshon is in many ways a continuation of that path and so here he is today with the question of did the sages study science Shalom Yishai a fascinating and fundamental question which we must explore did our sages study science did their intellectual curiosity and intellectual pursuits extend beyond the four cubits, the four L's of the Beit Midrash, the house of study? And if so, to what end? For what purpose? What goal? How did this knowledge serve them? A famous Midrashic statement relates, there is chokhmah, wisdom to be found among the Gentiles. For our sages, this wisdom represents all the different disciplines and areas of human discovery. And this statement is not hyperbole. It's not just some nice idea. It's not merely theoretical. An appreciation and an understanding of this wisdom, science, medicine, technology is indispensable to be able to interpret the Torah and perform its mitzvot. The Talmud is full of examples of how our sages used science and mathematics, for example, to assist in their understanding of Torah. Like when the sage Rav spent 18 months living among the shepherds to study what types of blemishes on animals heal and which do not. He was studying anatomy, biology 101, or how Rabbi Zera was hesitant to rule on issues of family purity without the requisite knowledge of the physiology involved. The sage Shmuel was an expert in astronomy and boasts how he could single-handedly calculate the calendar for the entire diaspora Jewry. The Talmud even offers criticism for one who knows how to make such astronomical calculations but does not, concluding that it is even a mitzvah to make such calculations. And throughout Jewish history, many of our great thinkers and leaders were broad, worldly, educated, and studied this wisdom, these disciplines. Maimonides, Nachmanides, and Yehuda Halevi were physicians and philosophers. Dan Yitzchak Abravanel was a statesman. These great men possessed an intellectual prowess and curiosity, which unfortunately is absent in many corners of religious life today. They understood, like Rabbi Samson Rafael Hirsch writes, that the beauty and wisdom found in Western culture can dwell in the tents of Torah. As we read in our Torah just a few weeks ago in Bamidbar chapter 8, Aharon the high priest is instructed, when you kindle the lamps towards the center of the menorah, shall the seven lamps cast light. And as Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Berlin writes in his commentary, the branches of the menorah represent the pillars of wisdom and knowledge. The center lamp to which all of the other branches must face represents the light of our Torah. Torah is at the center, but its study and understanding requires illumination from the light of these other branches of wisdom. These other disciplines shed their light on our Torah. This idea is often attributed to Rabbi Eliyahu ben Shlomo Zalman of Vilna. 
the Vilna Gon. For many, the Vilna Gon personifies the perfected Torah personality with his complete unflinching dedication to Torah study. Yet the Gon also possessed a profound knowledge and deep understanding of secular studies, even encouraging the study of secular subjects among his students. In their introduction to one of his works, Aderet Eliyahu, the Vilna Gon's own children attest to the fact that, quote, by the time he was 12 years old, he had mastered the seven branches of secular wisdom. One of the Vilna Gon's disciples, Rabbi Yisrael of Shklov, writes in the introduction to his Pa'ata Shulchan, he, the Vilna Gon, explained that all secular wisdom is essential for our holy Torah and is included within it. He indicated that he had mastered all the branches of secular wisdom, including algebra, trigonometry, geometry, and music. The Gon traveled between Athens and Vilna effortlessly. And according to written testimony, the Gon openly encouraged his students to pursue secular knowledge. Another student, Rabbi Baruch Shik of Shklov, translated Euclid's elements into Hebrew. Euclid, considered the father of geometry, lays down the major principles of geometry in this classic work written around 300 BCE. In the preface to his Hebrew translation, Rabbi Shik writes, quote, I heard from his, meaning the Gons, holy lips, that to the extent one is deficient in secular wisdom, he will be deficient a hundredfold in Torah study, for Torah and wisdom are bound up together. He continues and writes that the Vilna Gon commanded him to, quote, translate into Hebrew as much secular wisdom as possible, making it accessible to the broader Jewish community. Now, should anyone question the veracity of this account, it was published in The Hague in 1780 during the Gon's own lifetime. For our great sages over the centuries, an understanding and appreciation of science and nature was indispensable in order to truly understand and appreciate the Torah and apply Jewish law. But sometimes the scientific or medical pronouncements or assumptions in the Talmud are incorrect or inconsistent with modern science, like the Mishnah, which discusses the kashrut status of an animal missing its kidneys or other vital organs, which simply cannot be, as the animal could not live, or passages in the Mishnah of the Talmud which discuss the ritual status, the purity of an animal that is half rodent, half dirt. Can such a thing exist? Did such a thing ever exist? Or the statement in the Talmud which permits killing lice on the Sabbath, as they do not reproduce. How do we deal with that? How do we reconcile that? Do we say that our sages can't be wrong, they are infallible and capable of making mistakes, or no? Our sages simply base themselves on the science of their day, the scientific and medical beliefs of the times in which they lived, and the works of natural history of the Greeks and Romans from that very period, like the first century Roman naturalist Pliny the Elder, which describes such cases, such animals. Our sages were dealing in theoreticals. They may not have seen such a creature, but what if such an animal would exist? What would the law be? The Talmud permits killing lice on the Sabbath as lice don't reproduce. Our sages believed in spontaneous generation just like the entire world did at the time. It's not that our sages were in error. It's that they trusted the scientists and the doctors of their day. And so great rabbis like the Rambam, for example, and many before him and after 
rule that we are not obligated to follow the medical advice in the Talmud if it's not consistent with the current thinking in medicine. Because our great sages were basing themselves on the medicine of their times. And we all saw how during the pandemic, the scientific community and medical community can make mistakes trying to figure things out in real time. And 1,000 years from now, many of the things that we believe to be true may also be proven wrong or inconsistent with the current thought or trend or practice in medicine. But beyond just using science in order to interpret and apply the Torah to the natural world, there is an intrinsic value to it. The Rambam, Maimonides, defining the mitzvah to love and fear God, asks, what is the path to love and fear God? When a person contemplates, he writes, quote, his wondrous and great deeds and creations and appreciates his infinite wisdom that surpasses all comparison, he will immediately love, praise, and glorify him, yearning with a tremendous desire to know God and his great name. As King David stated in Psalm 42, my soul thirsts for the Lord, for the living God. Through this study, understanding, and appreciation of God's glorious creation, his wondrous world, we can begin to try and understand and appreciate God himself. Wishing all of the listeners blessings from Jerusalem. Okay, that was pretty elucidating, right, Malka? Yeah, the, wow. The, the, the stage of study science. That's pretty cool stuff. Thank you, Rabbi Shimshon. Great stuff. Uh, and Rabbi Shimshon uh, Hakohen Edel is, of course, Jerusalem's Kihilat Zichron Yosef's uh, rabbi and spiritual leader. Malka, uh, speaking of great, you know, sages and deep thoughts, uh, The Forward, a newspaper that I like to peruse in order to get a chuckle and a giggle yeah. and sometimes some revulsion, okay. um, uh, had, this, fun. Had, had this headline. I mean, every other headline for them is Yiddish this and Mel Brooks that. I mean, the times, I, w- I want to do some kind of scientific research. How many times can you mention Mel Brooks in a year or Woody Allen in a year? Really? Okay. So here's a nice one. Uh, why I decided to give my dog a bark mitzvah. Is Not, that real? Oh, yeah. A report from Coco's coming of age ceremony what? was one of the, uh, uh, not only not only was it in the email of the forward, it was even in the title. They were like dog bar mitzvahs, you know, is that is that the coming, you know, thing? It's um, unfortunate that no one could see my jaw being on the floor here on this podcast. Let me read that. Let me read that title again. Why I decided to give my dog. A bark mitzvah. People are bored. A report from Coco's coming of age. No ceremony. one has has what to spend their money on. You know, even if people are not bored, right? It's like I'm the forward. I'm I'm this like liberal Jewish, you know, newspaper of of with great heritage. Yes. Really? You're really gonna not only gonna well, print wait, that, what did you read it? Yeah, and it's about and it's about yeah. what's and what what's the conclusion? What, did they make like a big serious party? Yeah, yeah. Or was it like this, a little thing in their living room? This where dog they made reached like the age of maturity. Whatever it what was. What is the age of maturity Who? for a dog? I don't want eight even, months old. I don't. I don't. I don't want to delve into it any more than this. I don't. I don't want to go any further. The, the bottom line is, this was a headline. It was serious. It was a real article. It was, you know, a cutesy article. But like, the bottom line is that I'm like, if you want, if you wonder, wander. If you wonder, wonder. Yeah. Uh, You're doing why? Great. I know. I'm doing it. Uh, why? Like. Reform 
conservative Judaism is failing. Oh, and the next day they had another article being like, there's not there's a shortage of rabbis in Reform conservatives, so they're taking cantors. Wait, they 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 basically don't have enough people to lead these congregations anymore. These like no these, one wants to be a rabbi. Uh, no. There are many people who want to be a rabbi. They don't want to be a reform rabbi. Yeah, reform conservative rabbis. Why not? Are, why not? The answer is simple: because you have you have bark mitzvahs, and if you have a bark mitzvahs, why don't you just ordain the dog already? You know, send them through uh, send them through yeshiva and uh, already ordain him. If he's already if he's already bar mitzvah, might as well go all the way. Bark mitzvah. Yeah, bark mitzvah. It's when 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 you when you take when you take. Uh, Something serious and progressivism, liberalism, and you and you uh, turn it into mush, and you turn it into dog food. Uh, then, then that's going to be a religion that's not too attractive. Yeah, the, 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 you take progressivism, you take liberalism. There are some good values there, but when you start turning it into a replacement theology of Judaism, and you start kind of like turning it into 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 just mush. Yeah, but I don't think this is a replacement theology. I think that this is one of those cases in which like Jewish humor went too far. It's like there's a place, you know, humor is a big part of of Jewishness. And I think that some people have like, you know, speaking of Mel Brooks, right? You're like talking about how people, how the, the forward is always talking about Mel Brooks. It's like the, like, like, Jewish humor has become a higher value to some people than like Jewish wisdom or Jewish serious, like Jewish uh, scholarship, uh, you know, uh, commitment or something right. like that. It's like, or, or Jewish, uh, f- you know, fear of heaven. It's like, you know, to, to make a joke out of your serious stuff is to like dilute it. You know what I mean? It's like, and I appreciate I really that. like what you're saying and I wish that you would go back to my tweet that I tweeted this thing and to write that as, as a few paragraphs. I think you're saying so correctly. I think you're saying it very, very, very right. And and there are these Jewish values that are, as you said, like kind of forgotten amongst the certain groups. Right. And it's, uh, it's like, I understand that like uh, the bar mitzvah in America is like this big overblown celebration that's like a little bit humorous. But at some point, it has to not be funny. Like, at some point, it has to be real and true and ancient and um, and meaningful. And pure. You know? And awesome. <laughs> but, yeah, it has to be something real. And when you start to make everything, like, hilarious, then it's called leitzanut, actually. Right. Um, which means, like, clownishness. And it's one of the traits that you have to... Um, ask for forgiveness for on Yom Kippur. Mm-hmm. It's like one of the list of, of sins, actually, is uh, late Sanu. Manga, you're, you're coming out strong Yeah, uh, I could be a reform rabbi. No. <laughs> By the way, I, 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 I want to I, I start telling people I'm a reconstructionist rabbi. I just want to, I want to have a Reconstruct the temple. Yeah, I'm a reconstructionist rabbi. I'm just like into, I'm into reconstruction. I'm like all about reconstructionism. The state, the Jewish state, der Judenstadt, and uh, the temple, of course, that's the next step. You know, we're reconstructionists around here. Well, there are people that want to stop us from reconstructing too much. Obviously, terrorism. Yep. Um, and also, uh, the Biden administration is trying to stop us from developing Judea and Samaria. Uh, there was a story out that they are going to stop the scientific cooperation and the and the different uh, grant monies that they have for scientific exploration in uh, in israel and they uh, are blocking what the trump administration unblocked they're re-blocking the grants to 
Jude- Jews of Judea and Samaria in their racist, uh, bigoted uh, um, policies. Um, and then you have the, the actual terrorists themselves. Uh, and then you have, you know, the Iranians and the bomb and all that. But uh, I was speaking with international law expert uh, Yifa, Yifa Segal, uh, who is also the head of Chetz. And she was what telling Chetz? me... Chetz? is an organization that just uh, promotes cooperation between Israel and America, fights anti-Semitism all over the world, and just kind of does a, does, does a whole host of projects of, of good guy work, good gal work in this case. Uh, and Yifa was at the Knesset, and we talked about... Another threat, which is the internal tension. This was an interesting, and and we were not perfectly aligned. A conversation. So what does so that mean? We had some disagreements in, in the okay, conversation. Okay, that's so good. That's that'll be interesting. I think you'll enjoy it. So here's Yifa Segal at the Knesset. All right, folks. Ishai Fleischer here, still at the Knesset, and I was in a room with three jurists who came to meet with Minister Ben Gvir. Their main concern was how Israel is perceived in the international media, but especially in their mind the rift that's in Israeli society uh, is one that says that Israel is not as stable as it was before, that there's a great internal fight, uh, and that some parts of the government are running away with the country, taking away the freedom of others, and they, being liberal Jews, are very concerned about how the country's acting and how they how their friends are perceiving Israel's acting or how the American government... And they asked me over and over again, is it even important to you, our relationship, the relationship of, of Israel and America or Israel and American Jewry? And, and I kept trying to say to them, so we're not really talking about the facts, we're talking about perceptions. And, and the perceptions are of a great rift between American Jewry and Israeli Jewry, between what's going on in Israel, and maybe the more liberal sides of Israel are concerned with how the right-wing government is operating, and you see that in the media all the time, the most right-wing government. I saw that this week in a big AP story, the most right-wing government. And so, so the question is, do we know how much the Israeli rift is actually hurting the broader relationship of Israel to the world, to American Jewry? And are the actors at play, the same actors that are trying to undermine Israel, are they the ones behind the rift, the, the societal rift in, in, in Israel? Here at the Knesset, I am joined by Yifa Segel, uh, who is the managing director of Chetz and also an expert in, in international law uh, and is a friend. And uh, Yifa is here with me today. And that's the issue that is on her mind as well. Uh, she's fought BDS famously in the past. Uh, but now she is fighting the delegitimization, now coming especially from the rift between Israeli Jewry itself inside and American Israeli Jewry. Yifa, what do you think? Well, first of all, thank you. Hi, it's good to, uh, to be with you today. Um, well, unfortunately, it's a very sad, I think it's more than sad, it's a very risky you know, situation that we're in. And I think the Israeli society needs to first understand you know, what is going on. And, and second thing is, is just to stop and take a deep breath and, and try to see how we communicate with each other. You know, do we even give the other the benefit of the doubt to understand what their feelings are, what their concerns are, what they're afraid of, what they want? And I think at the end of the day, the, the, the real tragedy is that there is no such real difference between, you know, what you now conceive as two camps. I mean, I think we generally want the same thing. We just don't know how to communicate it uh, so much. Now, this is not a situation that is very... So you're talking about polarity. Right? You're talking about polarity. Now, Israel's got a polarity right now. The question is, is this polarity a kind of global-wide 
atmosphere which has come out of America, or are there people engineering this polarity? I, I actually believe more, I'm on the latter side. I think that there's engineers to the polarity. I think there's people who make money off of it or have interests that work through polarity. In my mind, it's also Marxism. Marxism is an ideology by which you exploit societal rifts. And that's what I'm sensing. How do you see it? Well, I, th- I think it's a combination, and I think it's, it's, it's not so wise to just stop and say, you know, it's, it's not our fault. It's those, you know, opportunists that are trying to, you know, to, 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 to exploit the weaknesses or cynically exploiting the situation. I think if you stop there, then, then you're not going to do anything to really help the situation. So first we have to stop and see where we can take responsibility and see what we have done wrong to not reach out to the whatever the other side is to, to each and every one of us, understand them and accept stand you know like an olive branch so to answer your question to questions I guess first of all it, it's it's how the West I think is 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 now everywhere in the world there's a rift you know the the rhetoric is getting worse and worse it's it's, it's just it's horrible and the same thing is happening in Israel unfortunately the difference is is that I really don't think that there's a real you know massive disagreements on on, on, on essential fundamental issues here in Israel okay and I'll give you an example I think that we most of us the vast majority of us you know want to protect Israel to be you know a, a democracy that protects human rights. That protects well, before you go to democracy, yeah. like uh, before that, like I like I, I said to these guys before we talk about democracy. First, it's a Jewish state that is trying to defend the Jewish people in our ancestral homeland. That's the first goal. We're post-Holocaust people. Before we talk about the values of democracy, that's a very that's a, that's a that's a way further uh, uh, value than the simple value of defending our peoplehood. And that is not being achieved, you know, perfectly well yet. So, like, before I go to the great values of, you know, uh, of, of, of a system that is a good system, but it's not everything. First and foremost, I have to protect life and liberty of Jewish people, don't I? I don't think they're mutually exclusive at all. And I think, you know, 75 years of uh, Israeli independence have proven that they're not mutually exclusive. I mean, the fact that we want to, you know, defend Israel as a, as a Jewish state and we want to defend our borders and we want to defend ourselves against our enemies, you know, domestically and abroad is, is, is extremely important. And the fact that we want to ha- keep sustaining Israel as a, as, a, as a democracy with all that, what, what that means... You know, that, wor- that works perfectly, has been working perfectly. No reason for it to not, you know, coexist, you know, beautifully as, as it did and as it should be. So I don't think we need to, hi- you know, to find a hierarchy. And even, you know, that's, that's just, uh, you know, n- another uh, way for people who are, who are trying to find reasons to uh, come between us. You know, arguments like that. Because we definitely have seen it work and we can make it work. So- well, well from, from in my world... The enemies use the word democracy to undermine our rights to the land because they say, look, you're not democratic. And I always say to them, because that's not our first and foremost goal. Our first and foremost goal is to defend our people. Like the democracy word is used against me oftentimes. So re- reclaim it. Why do you allow them? You know, why do you allow them to, 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 to uh, what do you say, like... Uh, to, uh, to associate a word with their, you know, radical agenda. Democracy is democracy. They, they don't, no one owns democracy. We, uh, uh, as a Jewish state, have been, been living in a democracy that I think is a, is, a, is a beacon of light to the world, right? I mean, the fact that we have multiple opinions and we argue and we fight, it's, it's just an example of how beautiful our democracy is. Sometimes it comes with, you know, some, some, some challenges, but it, it is a beautifully working democracy. Well... 
the question, again, when we, we live in a little bit different worlds, right? In, in, in the world of Judea and Samaria, if I'm thinking about annexation, I've got to worry about the questions of, uh, the questions of what to do with the Arabs. And if I'm totally, I'm all for democracy, that's my first value, then I'm obliged to somehow give away, give away you know, freedom of vote to everybody. I'm not so sure I want that. And so therefore I have to minimize a little bit the value of democracy. And I'll give you an example. I was just... Wait, wait, I want to stop you there. I think, first of all, I think the fact that you're using the word annexation, I, I have to stop you with that. Annexation means that you're taking a territory that is not yours and you're annexing it to a territory that is yours. Sure. Okay, if we believe, you and I both believe, that the, the Jewish people in the state of Israel has a legal title to, uh, to Judea and Samaria. So if we extend sovereignty to Judea and Samaria, it's not an annexation. It's a political decision to extend sovereignty to a territory that is legally uh, ours. So first of all, let's, let's be clear on the terminology because it's, uh, it's important. Second of all, I think that there is a, a vast majority in, in Israel today, what we didn't have 20, 25 years ago, that understands that there is no point in trying to, you know, to figure out what the uh, solution would be with the Palestinians as long as there is no partner for peace in the Palestinian side. So, you know, the, the, there is no point to try to, you know, argue about, you know, what will be one day when the Palestinians might maybe have a leadership willing to truly honestly discuss peace. So, you know, let's... Who's talking about peace? I'm talking about uh, asserting sovereignty over our land. I'm not talking about peace. I'm not talking about with the PA. I'm just talking about if I now control this whole territory, there's people living there. Yeah, but you... Yeah, it, it's very... It's, it, it's, it's not very hard. It's impossible now to talk about anything, I think, right now, in this moment in time, beyond Area C, right? I mean, what's going to happen with Area A and Area B or Gaza? That's... I think, far, far in the future. I think I, I always, you know, when people ask me, what will be the future of Area A and B? And I say, well, do you, you want to buy a penthouse on Mars? You know, so what's, what's the conditions, right? What's the year? What's the condition? What are the circumstances? I don't know. So I don't want to talk about Area A and B until there's reason to talk about it. So extending sovereignty to Area C, it's a political choice. There's no, I don't see an impediment to that other than, you know, maybe it's uh, diplomatically, you know, there are various arguments that can be made, and it's an important political discussion, but it is a possibility, politically and legally. Okay, okay, that's, that's, this is very interesting stuff. Uh, for me, I, I figure there's really no way to only control Area C, because the truth of the matter is, if you look at the map, it's just a very ugly and impossible control, you know, roads and, 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 and small, you know, inlets and outlets, and it doesn't work that way. Like, in my mind, in my mind Israel will get back to areas A and B, because that's the normative way to control Judea and Samaria, which is our ancestral heartland, on top of which the PA is a, is a regressive, corrupt, jihadist regime. We're not going to be able to live with them. So I hope that we don't allow... I'll, I'll, I'll get you your turn. I, I, hope, I hope we don't allow ourselves to, to allow A and B to turn into... to equate that to the Gaza situation. All of those were mistakes in my mind. Uh, but I hope that we don't really have, have let... I hope we have not totally let go of A and B the way, that you're, the way that you're describing. No, I'm not talking about letting it go at all. I'm just saying, realistically, what is the situation right now, today? So I just want to say that very recently, like in the last few days, I think, there was a research that was done by the Bitronist team. I don't know how they call themselves in English. Uh, they're the officers. They're the more nationalistic side of the, of the officer core group. Uh, that believes in Jewish rights to the land of Israel and a strong defense as opposed to giving away land. Yes, yeah, so there's a, an in, a very interesting research uh, that came out that you see all these, uh, you know, kind of 
weird hybrid situations around the world of, of entities that are not exactly states, like semi-states, autonomy of different sorts, and enclaves in different other territorial, you know, it's, it, the, you, you, there are things that were invented, you know, hundreds of situations around the world. You can see the report. It's fascinating. Mm. So, by the way, it's just like we can be a little bit more creative than just like, you know, a zero-sum game of state or not state, PA or not PA. This is very important. This is very important what you're saying. And we're a lot of times locked into a very limited model. Whenever I talk to people about like Puerto Rico, they're like, nah! or I say to them, look, the United States even holds territories. Look at how they treat them. Here's different ways. There's different models. Even one of the greatest democracies in the world, certainly in our Middle East. You know, so, so I agree with you. And I'm going to look forward to that Bitronistan uh, report. I'll send it to you. And uh, so going back to, to our issue, I, 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 I really think that, uh, you know, I look at how the delegitimization movement is thriving in the last few months. I mean, we're doing the work for them because we, we end up being the ones who accuse each other of being, you know, a dictatorship, violating uh, human rights, fighting in civil war, you know, all these words that are so horrible because we've come to a point where we don't understand how important it is for me to stop and say, hey, you know, what are are you afraid of? What are, you con- what are your concerns? I mean, what, what drives you to, I don't know, either go to the uh, demonstrations on Saturday nights in uh, Kaplan Street in Tel Aviv or be supportive of the judicial reform? And, and I have to tell you, when I've sat down with friends and colleagues and really drilled down into the issues, like, what do we really believe? What is it that we're trying to achieve? you'll see that there are no real differences. There are no real differences. And so if we just allow ourselves to understand that we need to give the other person the benefit of the doubt, you don't mean, you know, me no harm, right? Unless you prove otherwise. But, you know, just to give you the benefit of the doubt that you mean well. And so you're talking about also civility. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a, you know, an English word. Yeah. I don't even know if we have it exactly here in Israel. <laughs> uh, civil discourse, civility. And I, I can't uh, disagree with you that we're definitely lacking that right now, a sense of civility. Uh, but you and I had a little disagreement in the beginning where I thought, like, the, there, there are more active actors here. Certainly, you'll have to agree with me that the pro-Palestinian, anti-Israel, blood libel narrative is extremely active, and the state of Israel is not doing a lot to curb it. I'll just give you an example. I have, in Hebron, right next to the Jewish community, in the in an area called Tel Rumeda, we have an anti-Israel activist of world-class stature. His name is Isa Amru. He's one of the best yeah. anti-Israel people. And I keep on saying to the army, I say to them, move him out of here. He's going to cause violence. People will die and bleed and die on this thing. He seems to you that he's just a media personality, but in fact, he's a media terrorist. Yeah. And, he, and he creates an atmosphere. And he, and he heats up the, 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 the region, the area. And he gets other Arabs involved in it. And other Arabs actually curse him because he, because he takes away the peace. But our country is, like, afraid to deal with him because he's got international connections. And they're afraid to take him on and because they don't want the bad videos and the bad press. And in the meantime, he keeps growing and growing and growing. And I see that all the time. Israel does not deal with the delegitimization issue. It just doesn't want to attack it. It doesn't want to face it for real. Well, I think uh, 
they want to face it for real. I think there are a lot of hurdles and problems and a lot of people that are too afraid to take responsibility, as you said, and I know a lot of these cases. And I think everything kind of ties in together. I mean, if we were more focused on what we have in common, right? I mean, if you go even, you know, uh, friends and colleagues that you speak to, I, I imagine, all the political spectrum between, you know, left and right. I'm not talking about the radicals. They will agree with you. A person like that should be stopped, right? I mean, it's, it's not outside the broad consensus of Israeli society. It's just that we're too busy with internal feuds about, you know, nonsense. That it's just miscommunications and, 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 and things that were aggravated in the media discourse and all of that. That we, we can't even unite around the, the issues that we all agree on that are super important and critical. So everything kind of links together. So the media is now trying to link everything to uh, judicial reform. And it, it, it happens on both camps, right? So it's just, that's what I've been busy doing, you know, in these past few months, just talking to my fellow Israelis and say, even to my government, like, why haven't you come out to say, we understand the fear that is in your hearts when you go to demonstrate. We understand you and we support you and we are with you. Because obviously, I think, that this is not why they're trying to pass judicial reform. And if you, you, t- you tell the people, when I speak to people who go to demonstrate, and I tell them, are you against revoking citizenship of, of terrorists? Are you, revo- are you against uh, having a stronger anti-boycott law? Are you against, you know, all these type of things that were revoked by the Supreme Court here in Israel? They will all say, absolutely not, we're with you on those issues. So why can't we all just understand that we actually agree on all these fundamental issues and just try to, you know, build a better society, first of all, at home? And then we will make sure that we don't fuel the haters around the world because that's exactly what we have been doing in this past few months. And God forbid the country will fall apart because we can't get along over just miscommunication and, and, and just nonsense, unfortunately. Right, sinat chinam, that's what you're saying, uh, which is just a, a baseless hatred, uh, f- hatred over nothing. Uh, and that's a plague uh, that the Jewish people have had. And that's our, how should we say, that's like our undoing, that's our ca- counter energy. On the one hand, we're an amanetzach, we're an eternal people, and we keep on being vibrant and alive throughout all these generations. And on the other hand, that's our Achilles heel, which is this like self-hating, the self-loathe, this, this like, this like, as, although, although the externals never get rid of us, the thing that weakens us always is our internal hate for one another. That's a classic problem of the Jewish people, and we, uh, and we, are, we are definitely fighting that. Uh, Ifa, Ifa Segal is the managing director uh, of Chetz uh, and also an expert in international law, meeting me here at the Knesset. Ifa, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. All right, Ifa, thank you Very so much. Very interesting. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, she, she, she and I clashed a tad, uh, but it was fun. And she's, that's okay, she's, that's yeah, Jewish. That's Jewish and certainly Knesset, and it certainly was, uh, was, was, you know, was, uh, was, was good conversation, and, and it was eye-opening for me to understand uh, that areas in the minds of some thinkers, areas A and B in Judea and Samaria are lost and are like, and are like Gaza. I just want to say that I really uh, appreciate uh, Senator Ted Cruz, who came out with a uh, a tweet this week condemning the Biden administration for its academic boycott of Israeli professors just because of their location uh, at in Judea and Samaria. There's always, you know, you were talking before about like, do we see America as Edom, as Esav, as as Esau? 
And it's and you're talking about the uh, not the threshing. What do you call it? The sifting the process. The sifting, yeah. Biru. The biru. And this is such a perfect example of that. It's like, w- is America pro-Israel or anti-Israel? Now, the Biden administration, when you're, I mean, an academic boycott, it's like, it's like for a country that is like all about like rights and free speech and freedom and manifest destiny and all this. It's like for them to be the country that's like, we don't include these thinkers because they're at like REL University, but we will include these speakers because they're at like Tel Aviv University. That is just disgusting. But then you have Senator Ted Cruz and like the backing of a huge swath of Americans who agree with him. I don't know if they want him to be their leader or whatever, but in terms of this ideology, they agree with him totally, which is like, how can you do this to the the Jewish people? How can you do this to Israel? And how can you make such a statement that you're, that America is the kind of country that boycotts people based on where they are? Mm-hmm. Well said, Malka, that's absolutely correct. And, and, and Ted Cruz has been a champion of Israel for Israel. A cha- and by the way, that word champion is a big DC word word. Right. It's not like supporter or I'm with you or I'm a right. an activist. He's a champion. He's a right. champion. And he has always been a champion. And, and God bless him to continue to succeed. So important, Malka, to to read the right news and to keep your mind uh, really with a healthy media diet. And so uh, JNS.org is a proud sponsor of the Ishai Fleischer Show. And I'm very proud to be associated with them. Uh, you also work for them. That's right. And JNS is a growing outfit. Uh, trying very much to make sure that the news is accurate, but also inspiring, and and also from a perspective of nationalism, of strong Jewish rights in the land of Israel, and I I very much support, and I hope that you guys go check out jns.org. They also send out a great email, and jewishpress.com. More feisty, uh, more opinionated, uh, but also informational and on the spot. Uh, uh, very caught up to the latest and, and just that their email gives you a real overview of both the Jewish and Israeli world. It makes a big difference. So watch your media diet. Make sure that you are eating. Your mind is is, is uh, imbibing. What's the word I'm looking for? Is Consuming. Is consuming the, the good stuff. Uh, same thing with actual calories. May they be not just calories, but also healthy calories and holy calories. Holy calories. Okay. That's a simple concept. How do you make your calories holy? First thing, the source has got to be holy. And then you have to put intent. You have you to, you have to put to, a blessing. You, you got to put a blessing, blessing on it. That's right. Uh, and a great source for holy calories is Prohibition Pickle. They do a great job at uh, creating a great, delicious, delightful, and holy food and spicy. I had, I love their condiments, okay? And I will not condemn <laughs> right. their Jewish condiments that are made right. uh, uh, in Judea and Samaria. That's, That's right. right. I will uphold and support the condiments, including excellent mustard, which I was relishing. Really good mustard. I'm talking about a real. I don't know why. It was like a new, I don't know what he did there. Because it was a real New York mustard. It was like, yeah. It was a real. I wish that I'd had a potato knish. Yeah. Mm, yeah. My mouth is watering. Yep, that's right. That's right. You smear a little of that Shmear mustard on there. And mm. you know what else? You got to relish that relish. Yeah. That was some good relish. Yeah, good pickle relish. Oh, my God. That was some great <laughs> relish. And also some of these little jalapenos that are... Oh, forget about yeah, it. Yeah. Anyway. He's good uh, at the condiments. Very good. He very has good. A, new, a hot sauce called Gehenna. Yeah. It's good stuff. It's really good stuff. Maka, uh, you know, prohibitionpickle.co.il makes meat. They make great vegetables as well. But Ben Bresky, our intrepid... Uh, reporter from reporter the field. Reporter from the field and historian uh, was out there. Uh, and he has a report for us on Jewish 
vegetarianism and veganism through the sources. What? And through, I think he went to some, some conference about uh, vegan vegetarianism. And so uh, here is uh, the one and only intrepid Ben Bresky in the field about Jewish vegetarianism. This is a moment in Jewish history. While I am not a vegan, it has always interested me, and so when my friend suggested we go to Vegan Fest in Tel Aviv, I said I would join. I recently had two episodes in a row where I talked about places in Israel I visited, but this week, like the previous week, I will be talking about places I missed going to. A vegetarian is someone who does not eat meat, and a vegan is someone who only eats plant-based food, meaning no meat or fish or dairy. Vegan Fest attracted tens of thousands for two days in Tel Aviv's Hayarkon Park. There were over 100 stalls with a wide range of food. Many reports say that Israel has a very high percentage of vegans and vegan restaurants, with Tel Aviv claiming at least 400 vegan restaurants. But what is the history of vegetarianism and veganism in Jewish tradition? Adam and Eve were said to be vegetarian, and some claim the prophet Isaiah was. In the 12th century, Asher ben Meshulam of France was said to have never tasted meat, the son of the revered Meshulam ben Yaakov. Like his father, he was a renowned Talmudist. He was the author of several books on Jewish thought. The famous traveler Benjamin of Tudela met him during his journeys of around 1165 and wrote, Rabbeinu Meshulam, the great rabbi, has five sons who are wise, great, and wealthy. Rabbi Asher, the recluse, dwells apart from the world. He pours over his books days and night, fasts periodically, and abstains from all meat. Rabbi Yosef Albo and Rabbi Yitzhak Arama, both who lived in Spain during the Middle Ages, wrote that vegetarianism was a moral ideal for the butcher in order to refine his character. In 1938, Fania Levando published a vegetarian kosher cookbook in Yiddish called Vegetarisch Dietischer Kochbuch 400 Speisen gemacht Ois Schlichlich von Grinsen, Vegetarian Diet Cookbook, 400 Dishes Made Exclusively from Vegetables. She ran a vegetarian restaurant in the Jewish quarter of Vilna in today's Lithuania. Artist Mark Chagall and songwriter Itzik Manger were among those who dined there. Some came for health or ideological reasons, but others came because meat was expensive. She also ran a cooking school and ran a kosher kitchen on a Polish ocean liner. Her cookbook had vegetarian recipes for chala, cholent, potato latkes, and kugel. Fania and her husband Lazer died in 1941 during the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union. Today, the book has been republished and translated into Polish and English. Today in Vilna, there is a plaque commemorating her and her husband and others who perished during World War II. Rabbi Avraham Yitzhak Cook, who became the first chief rabbi of the land of Israel in 1921, was mostly a vegetarian. It was only on Shabbat that Rabbi Cook would eat a small amount of chicken. 
His loyal student, Rabbi David Cohen, the Nazir, compiled his teachings on being a vegetarian, A Vision of Vegetarianism and Peace. In it, he quotes Rabbi Cook as teaching that he believed keeping kosher was a concession to the human desire to consume meat, and the true ideal was to be vegetarian, and that in the age of Mashiach, people would again return to the days of Adam and Eve and refrain from eating meat. Even the korbanot in the Holy Temple will consist only of vegetation. Rabbi Cohen, well known for never cutting his hair, was a vegetarian. But there are many instances of eating meat throughout Jewish tradition. Some consider it a mitzvah to eat meat on Shabbat, and holidays like Passover use meat in the traditions. My friend who invited me to Vegan Fest said that every year he hosts a vegan Passover Seder, and instead of the lamb shank bone on the Seder plate, he uses a roasted beet, or as the British call it, beetroot. Rabbi Huna in the Talmud in Tractate Pesachim briefly mentions eating beets on Passover. I have met other vegetarians and former vegetarians who tell me meat is healthy, but they consume only organic fresh meat. One Chabadnik told me he eats meat, but only that which he butchers himself on a nearby Moshav. This year, Vegan Fest was considered a success, and organizers noted that they estimated only 52% of those who attended were vegan. I would have been one of them had I made it. Hopefully, my next podcast will be about a place that I actually visit. If you have any suggestions, you may email me at bbresky at gmail.com. That's b-b-r-e-s-k-y at gmail.com. This has been a moment in Jewish history. Thank you to Yishai Fleischer. Thank you to all my vegan friends. Thank you to all the listeners. And Shalom. Wow, Ben, you blew my Food mind. Food for thought. <laughs> <laughs> Very good, Malka. Excellent stuff. Uh, and Malka, I want to tell you that um, after you did the media diet, after you uh, ate Prohibition Pickle, you got to burn it off. Best way to burn it off is to go on a great cycle tour koshercycletours.com uh, they will bring you to the best places with the best bikes with the best uh, guides and and train you teach you show you bring you and, and thrall you all in kosher style not kosher style kosher in style okay nice okay <laughs> and and uh and take you to beautiful places in the land of israel and also outside of the land god's country you know people i always tell people they go to you go to colorado people like this is god's country i'm like yes it is it's Elohim country, okay? And Israel is Yudke Vavke country, right? It's the Tetragrammaton country. Okay, that's anyway, we, that's, we don't that's have time. another yeah, show. That, that's, yeah. yeah, that's a more inside baseball, but important. In any case, koshercycletours.com, excellent uh, place to, to, to get great kosher cycle touring. And if you're going to be in the land of Israel, don't forget to visit the folks at Hebron, the Jewish community of Hebron. And we are the Knights of the Machpelah. We defend the Tomb of the Patriarchs and Matriarchs. Come visit us, hebronfund.org forward slash tour and of course if you want to get uh if you want to get high in the land of israel okay you got to go to the temple mount because there's no higher place that's high on the har.com go there get that spiritual suntan connect with the temple mount but speaking of late sanud it's not like a cute tourist ah. site it is not like a political uh you know perspective tour although that exists if you're going to go on the Temple Mount, you must go according to 
halacha, according to Jewish law, according to the way of the sages. It is not a joke. It is not a tourist site. It is not fun, it, although you may enjoy yourself. It is a holy place, and there's very specific ways that you can go and much more specific way, much more ways that you should not go and, and just take it serious, people. Malka, you are sharp today. Thanks. I got to tell you, you woke up like a, I ate a big salad yesterday. I think that has something to do with it. And you got up early morning to make cookies I for the end of school. I had to make cookies for the end of school uh, last, like, next to last day. You woke up early? I woke up early. And you, I and made you went, cookies. That's right. And you started the dough last night. You yeah. You got to go this morning. I was momming it hardcore. Yeah, you were Messiris Nefesh mom. <laughs> M-O-M. M-O-M. Messiris of Nefesh. Okay. That's very good, Malka. You're taking care of business. And... Um, and uh, you just talked about time uh, in the beginning and the end. And uh, great time pieces are classics. Yes. And they're made. Nice of, segue. That's right. You can you can find them at RetroWatchGuy.com. RetroWatchGuy is, uh, I'm not just a uh, promoter. I'm also a user of RetroWatchGuy's great services. They have great, uh, great 60s and 70s watches uh, that are a great present for your, for your, for your husband, son, grandpa, that kind of thing. I'm sure they have ladies watches too. Not so much, or maybe you're into like a nice masculine watch. Yeah, those are cool. They're very cool. Maybe, maybe, maybe I don't know. Retrowatchguy.com. I'll take a look. I haven't seen a lot of lady watches, but maybe they're there. Okay, then maybe they're there. We'll check it out. We'll get information. The Retro Watch Guy people are making Aliyah to the land of Israel this summer. Uh, We got to get them on the show when they make Aliyah. You bet we will. You. I hope you guys are listening. You bet. Of course they are listening. They're listeners. That's why they're also sponsors of the show. That's the way it works. I also want to shout out uh, somebody just knocked on the door beforehand. And she said to us, you know, my mom listens to your show. So I want to do a shout out to Lori Lizer. Hello, Lori. Lori Lizer. We got your daughter's beautiful cup that she made all by herself. Good job, Lori, raising a good nice kid. Nice lady that you did. Yiddish Nachas. That's right. Yiddish Nachas. God bless you, Lori. Keep it up. And thanks so much for being part of the show. And I want to thank a lot of other people that are part uh, of the show. And that is, uh, first thing, Yochevit Seidman, Moshe Herman, Ben Bresky, Tabitha, and Lewin were live. Uh, that helps us. Uh, get, they help out. They help make the show actually get out to you, to your ears. So thank you to the team. Uh, thank you to Krista and other supporters through the... Um, buy me a coffee. Buymeacoffee.com. Thank you so, so much. Forward slash Yishai. Uh, and if you get lost, you could just go to uh, YishaiFleischer.com. And also, I think I got a donation recently uh, from somebody who uh, wanted to just uh, support support the works that we do. Uh, at yishaifleischer.com. So thank you very much. Amalka, I have one more interview from the Knesset. Uh, I spoke with an, with a um, legal expert uh, about the issues of uh, the judicial reform, uh, and that is uh, Yotam Eyal was uh, at the Knesset, and I, I pulled him over to have a discussion a little bit about judicial reform and where it's going. So here's Yotam at the Knesset. All right, folks, Ishai Fleischer here. I'm in the Knesset today, Wednesdays, try to be in the Knesset. I just sat with a group of American jurists just a few minutes ago, and this uh, group of American jurists were all concerned about the proposed changes to the election committee of the Supreme Court, and what they were really concerned with was not how Israel is changing, potentially changing its laws uh, about the court. They were actually concerned with the perception of it and how they can defend Israel uh, with their per- perception, also the media's perception of what's happening here. But it's obvious that they are not equipped with the facts. It's clear that they don't actually understand exactly what's going on and that they are fed 
uh, from the media, and there's just this negative perception, which is, which is artificially uh, and purposefully drawn in order to create a dark image for, for Israel, a negative image. The problem is, is they're not oriented and not armed with the facts. Uh, Yotam Eyal here at the Knesset uh, is the CEO of the Legal, Legal Forum for Israel. Uh, the Legal Forum for Israel deals with exactly that, tries to uh, make Israel more normal, more democratic, more in line with, uh, with norms of, uh, of how the legal system should look. And he's armed with the facts. He just came back from a tour of Canada, uh, spoke in front of hundreds of people, and people are, in fact, desperate to understand a little bit better, and even I'm desperate to understand just a tad better, what exactly uh, are the proposed changes, what's the situation, and how do we indeed bring Israel in line uh, with, with our wills to make a Jewish state that has liberal values uh, still and continues to support the thriving of the Jewish state. Yotam, thank you so much for joining me here at the Knesset. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, so uh, if you were in the room with those uh, three important jurists that I sat with just now, what would you have told them? They said, you know, are you guys trying to, you know, weaken the Supreme Court and create a situation, situation in which you can override the Supreme Court or decide on which judges are going to sit in the Supreme Court in a different way that's an unfair way that leans more towards uh, the elected government as opposed to a neutral Supreme Court? So, first of all, I will say, what is democracy? When we're speaking about democracy, we need to understand that there is, democracy is supposed to be a balance between the three branches of a, of a government or governance. And in Israel, we have a problem. We have a problem that today the judicial system got too much power. They took a lot of power to himself from the other branches, as the legislative, the Knesset, and the government. So what the reform trying to do is actually to balance it back to the place that the Knesset can imply their values and bring the, the Supreme Court into the place that is actually can correct the Knesset and the government and not overruled the, the, and taking the power from the government and the Knesset. Okay, so you're saying that the Supreme Court's job is to criticize laws, but based on what? You know, we don't have a constitution here, uh, and one of the things that you have in the United States is a standing law, meaning to say, how does a case even get to the Supreme Court? It's got to go from a lower court to the appellate court. From the appellate court, maybe, 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 if it's a constitutional case, and you write an appeal to the Supreme Court, the, the Supreme Court may and most likely will not take your case, and they'll just say, you know, we, we referred back to the appeals court, or we don't, we don't want to judge on it so the appeals court decision is final. Here in Israel, we don't have that. You have a Supreme Court that, that suddenly just decides that it wants to take a case. I don't even think you have to have a case in controversy. You don't have to have an aggrieved party. That's issue number one. Issue number two is you spoke in a general philosophical. Let's talk about, as we say, tachlis, a bottom line. What is being recommended right now? What is the discussion of the changes that could happen here in Israel if this government pushes forward? Okay, so for the first point, what happened is that you mentioned that the Supreme Court got a lot of power between theories. So what happened is that, and you spoke about the standing right and about the, about the ways that someone actually can go into the Supreme Court. So the way that the Supreme Court took power in between theories is combined from a few different parts. First of all, he gave himself the option to override the decision of the Knesset 
or the, the government by saying that something is unreasonable. The reasonability clause. Yes, unreasonableness. It's actually not reasonable, it's more unreasonable because the idea is about that the Supreme Court doesn't need to give excuse why he say that something is not, the government decision is not good. He just can say that something is unreasonable. And if it's unreasonable, that means that he doesn't need, every person have different reasonableness. Every person, if you ask the case for a person, he will say different answer about something if it's reasonable or not reasonable. And the judges took to himself the power to decide to say, if something, if we, we think by our values that something is not reasonable, that means we can over overrule the decision of the, of the government. That's taking a power in one way. The other way was about overruled the Knesset decisions. First of all, it was in which way, the unreasonable is in which way we can do it. Second is that we have the power to do it because if in Israel, as you mentioned, we don't have a constitution. So how we got even to the point that the Supreme Court can overrule the decision of the, of the Knesset because we don't have a constitution, so we don't have anything that says that they have this, this power. So the Supreme Court just gave to himself this, this thing. When In 1992, when we made a law called the basic law in Israel, human dignity law. So he take it and made made interpretation that says that law giving me the rights to overrule all the other laws that there are in Israel. And from this point, he took the power to himself. The last one is who can apply to the court. Because usually when we are going to the court, we have certain cases. These cases, for example, if I got hurt from the government decision, let's say that the government decide to destroy my house and, and build a road. So I'm going to the court. I can ask the court to get some money for my house, maybe even to stop them from running my house if it's not coming from the right reasons. But what happened today that I don't need to be someone that's getting hurt from this, this decision. In Israel, every person can go to the Supreme Court and appeal on any subject. That means that if I don't like the decision of the government of the Knesset, I'm just, I can go and apply to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court that, that I mentioned. He got the power to himself to decide in this question and he got the ways to do it. He can overrule the decision just because he wants to and not because there is a person that has a standing right. Okay, so what are, what are your suggestions right now? What are the moves to change some of this and to bring it back to norms? So the main issue about in the judicial reform, as it was represented a few months ago, was about changing who appointing the judges in Israel. Right now in Israel, the judges appointing themselves into the role. I know it sounds crazy, but they are appointing themselves. In order to appoint someone to the, court, to the Supreme Court, we have a committee of nine members. Three of them is Supreme Court judges, and in order to appoint someone, you need seven voters. That means if the Supreme Court judges are voting together and they always voting together that means they have a veto right about who will go back in and get into the supreme court but unfortunately because of all the protests and because of what we had in israel today this is out of the table for for now i'm not saying it's not going to change but for now so what the government actually trying to do right now is to go for two things First of all, is about the unreasonableness, as we mentioned, that is giving the court the option to override decision just by something amorphous that doesn't have uh, actually any explanation about why you need to override the decision of the government. And the second one is about the government legal advisor. In Israel, the government legal advisor, and that sounds crazy, and every time when I'm speaking with someone and, 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 say, and saying this issue, and he says how it can happen. In Israel, 
ו-Government Legal Advisor can put a veto right on the government decision. He can tell to the government, you're not allowed to represent yourself in front of the court when someone appeals against you. That means when you're going to the Supreme Court, you have only two people in the Supreme Court in front of the judges. The first one is the guy that appealed against it. The second one is the government legal advisor that represented against the government decision. So the government doesn't even get the basic thing that every person that's standing in front of the court have to have his own representative. So what I now suggest is to change it that the government can take representative for yourself. It's something that's supposed to be so basic that it's crazy that we actually fight about it right now in Israel that every, every person in the world understands that every government needs to have the option to represent yourself in front of the court. Okay. Last question for today. We're speaking with Yotam Eyal, who's the CEO of the Legal Forum. How much of the protests is really about the mechanics of legal reform? And how much is it about just bringing down the Netanyahu government uh, against the general right wing, and this is just the issue that they found? How much, what do you think the percentages were like? It's like really people are upset about the issues, or is the issues are really just a cover for a much broader societal rift? I will split it to two parts. First of all, there is 10% of the people of the people in the protest that they, this is the people behind the protest. This is the people that are actually moving all these people out to go and to protest and they're explaining them about these issues and why it's important to go and protest. The other 90% that you all saw, saw in the streets, in the pictures, that going and demonstrating against the judicial reform, it's 90% of the people that doesn't even understand why they are there. They're just going by the 10%. So then this 90%, I think, just getting scared because they're afraid about things for Israel, for example, becoming a Jewish state that doesn't allow them to drive in the streets in Shabbat and things like this. But, and these things not actually on the table. It just think that the other 10% putting there. But the other 10%, and this is the second, the second part, and the most important part, this 10% doesn't even care about the judicial reform at all. All what they care is taking down Netanyahu. And how I can actually show it is that with the same 10% people, it's the same people that was protesting in Netanyahu before the judicial reform was happened. They actually had meetings before the judicial reform was represented about how we can take people out and demonstrate. So they doesn't like the, the right control the state. And that's all, the only way, the only reason that they are out of the streets, because eventually, when you look on the judicial reform, you can see that it's so logic. It's so logic, and this is what happened in every other country, like democratic Western country in the world. So why, why it make people so scared? Because there is a mechanism of uh, with a lot of money that coming mostly from uh, from the New, New Israel Fund, from Europe countries, from people that doesn't want to see Israel as a Jewish state. And they're putting this money with these people in, in, in the media and changing the mind of people and actually make them angry about, about issues, even if it's not actually what's on the table. Very good. Okay. Yotam Yael, thank you so much for fighting for uh, a just uh, justice system here in the land of Israel at the Legal Forum for Israel. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. Thank you so much, Yotam. Great job uh, explaining to us. Uh, and he's a real... Strong young Israeli who is out there. And it's amazing how the young people in Israel are involved 
in, in the in the system to try to better it. And we just there's so much, so many issues, and yet there's so much love of this country. I feel it every single day. You know, um, we have a son who's almost twelve, right? And he like we had a discussion here on the show about how he wanted to uh, read the news. And how I didn't really want him to be exposed to all the like junk that uh, that they put in the news today, and that we ultimately um, decided on a couple very uh, specific websites that he could get his news from. And I remember as a kid that my father used to yell at me because I'd never read the news. I never like read the paper, never read the news, and he couldn't understand why I don't want to know what's going on. I grew up in Texas. Here in Israel, it's like the kids are totally different. They like they all like care about the news. They care about what's going on. They want to be active and involved in activism on behalf of good causes. And uh, you were mentioning, I think last week on the show, you were mentioning that there was a a beautiful group of um, I think maybe you didn't mention on the show that there was a group here uh, in our town in Judea who was running a camp for special needs kids. Right. Uh, through the Ezra Youth Group. They were running a, a whole camp. It was all run by teenagers. Um, and how, like, involved in in giving that these kids were. So these some ki- of the kids, kids are, are running- politically involved, and some are involved in, in charitable works and acts of kindness. And kids, like, being involved in in building and giving is is a big thing for Jewish kids. It was a five-day camp for mentally handicapped kids. Right. Run by local kids. Which seems difficult. I, I asked them seriously. I said, is this not difficult? And they're like, yeah. And then they're like, we have a few experts around this and that, but That's we're amazing. running this thing. And and, you, and I, I'm telling you, these and these were some mentally challenged kids that were there. I saw them. But the... But the right, but and, the, and kids with Down syndrome. And, yeah. Right. And it was just, it was just, I came back like glowing. I, I came back from the, I prayed with them the evening prayer I came back like I was at the Temple Mount. Wow. I just came back so like inside. I because was just, like, it's very inspiring. It's, it's very inspiring. inspiring that like these quote unquote regular kids right. would want to give of themselves like that. Yeah, I cried. I really I really Aww. thought that was just, I was just like, this is beautiful. This is really beautiful. Um, okay, Malka, uh, we are coming towards the end. But before we finish up, I just want to say that uh, uh, in America, they're in Parshat Chukat, which is uh, the red heifer. Here in the, in the land of Israel, we're going to be studying my like what I call the movie Torah portion of Balak, the famous wizard who came to curse the Jewish people uh, and to and to undermine the story of the Jewish people. So, just two quick thoughts for you. These are very deep thoughts and big thoughts, but we'll just do it very tight and short. And I want to give everybody here in the land of Israel a Torah thought, and outside of the land of Israel a different thought as well for for last week's for what we see as last week's parsha Torah portion. Just the red heifer is a mysterious uh, a mysterious right and a mysterious law. But let's understand not the technicalities right now, but the premise. The premise of the red heifer is that there is a way and a secret way to defeat the energy of death. That is the point of it. it through the process of the red heifer, there's a way to sprinkle the ashes of the red heifer on the Jewish people, and to thereby, thereby erase, uh, uh, remove the uh, tumah, the energy of death that surrounds us. The what's it called, Malka? The uh, there's a way of saying tumah in English. Impurity. Impurity. 
uh, yeah, impurity uh, of of it's not even an impurity. It's 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 almost like a an aura. There's there's a all things are surrounded by life. The bad mojo. The bad mojo that brings you down down to Chinatown. Okay, wants to take you down, and that is basically entropy. And the only way to defeat that is to have some kind of ability to connect to God who's eternal, to rid yourself of this world's, uh, you know, they say only two things are, are, you know, eternal death and taxes, that type of thing, right? But there's a truth to that. There's something about death which, which Not is... Not eternal. Uh, which is certain. certain, right. right? You're right. That's right. There's only one thing that's eternal, that's God. But plugging yourself in and ridding yourself of the energy of death is the secret of the Jewish people. That's why for us the word netzach, which means victory, is also the same word as eternity. Okay, that's how we, we actually defeat you over time. Even if we're right now not doing everything right, over time, when you're connected to God through the ability to rid yourself of the impurity of death, uh, and that is so much of Judaism, the Sabbath, the, the, the kosher laws, the hand-washing laws, the family purity laws, all, they, all of them have another goal, which is to avert the energy of death. The pinnacle of that, which we don't have today, is the red heifer, but it is a symbol of the ability to defeat death. And so I say to you right now, you want to connect to the eternal, you connect to the Jewish people. By the way, and this is what Ruth knew. Ruth knew that if I, I could connect now from Moab, I could connect myself to the Jewish people, I will have an eternal connection to, to God and to eternity. And Ruth indeed has that eternity. And King David is eternal. That comes from Ruth. My point is, is that, is that the red heifer for all of you non-Jews out there is the Jewish people. To connect with the Jewish people is to... Don't burn us. No, no, no. That is your sprinkle. That is the sprinkle that you get by, by, by listening to the show, by, by, by learning the, the, the Torah, the Bible, by, by, being, by reading the Israel website and, and connecting to it. That is your red heifer. That is your ticket to connecting to the eternal and to, 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 the, meaningful, to the meaningful life. Uh, of walking in the footsteps of God. So that's that's one thought I wanted to give. That's nice. Of course, we still need the actual red heifer. No. And people need to know that there are like multiple people working on this as like their life work yeah. to locate, to breed, to bring to Israel, to like identify the red heifer. I think that there were only how many? Ten red. There's supposed to be there only was nine. Ten. There was nine. There was nine. And there's supposed to be in the in the end of days one last red heifer. That's right. That's right. And there are people like, you know, those hurricane chasers? They're red heifer chasers, okay? Right. And there are people who go to different farms around the world, especially in That's the southern United States, and they're like, I heard you have a red cow. Right. And it's got to fulfill all kinds yeah, of requirements. And there's very specific criteria for what constitutes the appropriate cow. Okay. Now, for Balak, just very quickly, the Moabite king, who was actually a Midianite, but he, he became a Moabite ruler sees that the Jewish people are coming to the land. He is threatened by them, and he hires an evil wizard whose name is Bil'am, which means Bil'am, without a nation. Mm. He is nationless. He's all about himself. He is not part of a greater whole. He doesn't have a nation or a family or this and that. He's a freelancer. But he's a total freelancer. He's about himself. He's like a total freelancer. He doesn't have loyalties, fealties, He's 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 about you know he's about the bottom line and he can use his power and his perceived connection to God to do whatever. And he goes against the will of God. God lets him, and but the donkey sees this angel of God uh, before him, uh, and and he strikes the donkey three times. Finally, uh, uh, the donkey sees the angel clearly enough. Finally, the eyes of of Bilam are revealed, 
and he what do you mean revealed uh, the B- Bilam God lets him see the angel that's right. before him and so uh, basically the don- and the donkey says to him the donkey opens its mouth and it says to him have I not been your uh, your trusted donkey uh, all this, this whole time, time this whole time and he's like had I had I had a, a, a sword with me I would have killed you and and the donkey's like basically the conversation can be read this way which is don't you have a sense of of history don't you see the beginning and end of things don't you see the real will of God throughout time are you are you going to be the kind of people that try to curse the Jewish people don't you see that God wants them to survive and wants them to thrive and finally get to their destination like which side of history are you on don't you don't the same thing with me like don't you see that I've served you all this time if something's happening don't you question that and say I trust you my trusted steed uh and 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 but before you go violent don't you want to analyze the bigger picture um and what the evil king uh Balak does is the whole time he wants to take Bilam the evil wizard to a place where he'll only see the edge of the Jewish people not the full story the edge and on the edge he will kill he will excuse me curse the Jewish people that is the trick of Bilam and Balak they want to show a tight little image and on that image they want to curse the Jewish people that's exactly what the media does they'll take a small incident between a soldier and some Arab and they will blow it up and they will put their focus just on something to curse and they don't see the big picture the historical picture they don't see what Bilam was finally forced to admit how goodly Matovu Olecha Yaakov Israel Mishkanotecha Yaakov how goodly are your tents, Jacob, your dwelling place is Israel, right? He, and it doesn't work also. It doesn't work to curse the edge of the Jewish people. No, he doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't quite work, uh, although he does find a way in the end to curse the Jewish people, and that is to get them to sin. And that is, the, that is what, the, when evil, evil is on, and, and when, it, when it tries to, if it doesn't, if it's not able to do the big job, it, it, it strikes at us by... Right, which is another way to say that, that it's really impossible to curse us from the outside. You can only curse us from the inside. Right, there's a like that we uh, The only way for the Jewish people to be cursed is for us to curse ourselves. Uh, that's right, uh, that's right, and, and to fall, and to fall. And we're not falling, Maka. We have a lot of pitfalls, but we're not falling. We are waking up and we are getting up. I want to thank you so much, Malcolm Fleischer, for joining me today on the show. Yes, thank you. I want to thank all the folks that, that made the show possible, including uh, our, our guests, our interviewees, and also Ben Bresky and Rabbi Shimshon Nadel, uh, our resident uh, priests, our Kohanim, uh, bringing great uh, uh, radio and sound to the show. I want to thank you all out there, wherever you are. I want to send you a big blessing from the good land, from the land of Israel. We shall overcome because God is with us. We are plugged into the eternal. We're not going to see just a small picture. We're going to see the big picture. We're going to be plugged into that big picture, and we're not going to allow ourselves to be small-minded in this generation of greatest opportunity and greatest ability to contribute to God's dream. We are part of the big picture, and so we're going to snap out of it, dust ourselves off, not let the little things get us down and see the big picture and continue to push forward with God's great project and do our job in our generations. Lots of love and lots of blessings from the land of blessings. God bless you all and Shabbat Shalom. Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.